Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. If you will, turn to the 90th Psalm as we look today at this amazing prayer of Moses. Psalm 90. I think, I think every Christian needs a healthy diet of the Psalms. Uh, They're they so amazing. They're so rich. As we see today, I pray that uh, that would be true in our lives as we look at this. Let's read it together. Psalm 90, uh, just to start off with it. Psalm 90 verse 1 says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by the evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass away and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servant. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants and your splendor to your children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We come to this psalm today, and, and, and we were going to look at a message entitled, The Man of God's Look at Life. And the psalm itself has a title. Some psalms do. Most of them uh, will have some kind of subtitle, if you will, underneath the heading of the chapter of the psalms. In this, in, this, in this instance, Psalm 90, it begins right afterwards. Some of your Bibles might even have it included in verse 1, and I think that's appropriate. It says, look at ours right there, Psalm 90, right underneath it, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is none other than the same Moses of Scripture. The, the Exodus 33 calls him the man of God. And you would do well if you listen to a man of God, let alone the man of God. Anybody agree? And so we see this title today, and, and the title of this psalm, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God, two elements that are all but missing in our society today. We have one being prayer, and two being a man of God. These are all but myths today, it seems, doesn't it? Where are the praying people? Where are the men of God? They're nowhere to be found. But today, we're going to look at how the man of God looks at life from this song. And here, here this man of God is referring to Moses. 
who, if you know anything about Moses, has certainly had his fair share of mishaps and struggles, hasn't he? The first part of Moses' life, he is born at what seemingly is an inopportune time. The Pharaoh at the time has just decreed for all the newborn baby Hebrew boys to be killed. Well, Moses in God's providence finds himself laid in the Nile River by his mother in a basket and found by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. And so he finds himself there in Pharaoh's house, and he grows up under Pharaoh, if you will, as his guardian mother, Pharaoh's daughter. And so he learns the ways of the Egyptians. He grows up knowing that he is a Hebrew. He sees one of his Hebrews being mistreated, and he murders the Egyptian who's doing the mistreating. He flees to the land of Midian. He marries. He becomes a shepherd of sorts. He's there for quite some time. And then in Exodus chapter 3, we come to the burning bush experience that he has where the Lord appears to him and declares who he is and saying, I am who I am. Moses then goes to Egypt because of God's announcement of saying, hey, you're going to go to Egypt. You're going to lead my people out of Egypt into the promised land that I have given to them. And so he does this. He goes back to Egypt. We know the stories of the ten plagues. Come, Moses leads the, the Israelites out of Egypt in the Exodus. Moses then goes into the wilderness on Mount Sinai. He receives the law of God. We know the Ten Commandments coming uh, on the tablets from the Lord himself. Shortly thereafter, actually, when he comes down the mountain, he finds the Israelites have given up altogether and say to Aaron, make us another God. And so they, they are there worshiping this golden calf that they have fixated. Obviously, that didn't work out too well for several of them. Then the Israelites lay this pattern of just grumbling and complaining and, woe is me, and they were never happy. They were never content. Uh, here's some manna and quail. We're tired of manna and quail. Can we get anything else? We don't have any water. Here's some water from a rock. They are never happy, always grumbling, always comp complaining. And so later on, it results in their 40 years of wandering in the desert, Moses being their leader, all this obstinate, rebellious people that Moses is the leader of, and God says they're going to die in the wilderness along with Moses, who will never enter the promised land. And now it's most likely that in this time, and you say, what is all that information for? It's going to come into play when we go back and read Psalm 90 through again. It's probably at this time, most scholars would agree, that Moses penned Psalm 90. Right in this time where the Lord has announced his judgment, and I'll give you a background on Numbers chapter 14, if you will, that's, that's what the story kind of backs up to. But what had just happened is Moses has just sent some men into Canaan, into the promised land to scope it out. All of them, except for two, come back and say, there's no way, can't do it, not a chance, and they're going into the land that the Lord has promised to give them. They say, no way. Joshua and Caleb say, yeah. They come back and they say, we can't do it. And, of course, they resume their grumbling. They, can, they resume their complaining. And they then want a new leader. And they want this new leader to, watch this, send them and take them back to Egypt where they just escaped by God's power. Crazy stuff. So Joshua and Caleb, the only two guys that had any sense, I guess, in this group, they come before the people and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And when they plea with them to kind of get a grip, people, the people then turn on Joshua and Caleb and say, let's stone them. And so the Lord, at this time, appears, announces his judgment. He says, I'm going to wipe these people out. He tells Moses, Moses, I'm going to start a whole new nation with you. These people 
are far from me. They are rebellious. They are obstinate. And we know that's not the Lord's plan. And so Moses calls and begs for mercy to the Lord, and the Lord relents, and he says, this generation will nonetheless die out in the wilderness. And we know, we read the rest of the story, they do. And right in Numbers 14, the Lord's hand of favor is removed from the Israelites, and they begin to mourn, and they quickly go into battle, and they're defeated. And so this brought, this whole scenario brought a lot to light for Moses, don't you think? This whole instance of the Lord with them, and the Lord going before them, and then his anger, then his anger removed, and then his judgment to let these people die off in the wilderness. Moses looks at life a little bit differently, wouldn't you think? You may have something in your life where it just changed the way you look at everything. Maybe it was an event, it was a traumatic event, maybe, maybe it was something that was great that happened. Moses has this instance. So what is it that we can learn from this man of God? In other words, how does the man or woman of God look at life? Even from this scenario, we, we, we see in the Psalm 90 three imprints of how the man of God looks at life. First, the man of God acknowledges God's eternality. He acknowledges God's eternality. Look at verse 1. He acknowledges it by knowing who he is. Here's his opening prayer. Lord, you. Isn't that simple? Lord, you. He didn't start any kind of crazy way. He didn't do anything extra or fancy. He also didn't do anything irreverent. He said, Lord, you. You can tell a lot about a a person by how they begin in prayer, can't you? Moses is a man of God, and he says, Lord, you. It's a term that that was reserved only for God in the Old Testament, only for the Lord, and it meant master. He says, master of all things, you. It's a strong start. It's a solemn start. He knows who he's dealing with here. It's not his buddy who he's coming before. It is not his brother, Aaron. It is no one but the Lord himself, and he doesn't take it lightly. He acknowledges rightly who God is. Lord, you. The man of God always has the Lord at the forefront of everything that he does. Every decision that he makes, it's Lord, you. I want your name to be great. Every prayer that he prays, Lord, you. Every, everything that he looks at in his life, it is weighed by Lord, you. Moses has this. Moses has got this going. He realizes that what he's saying right here, no matter the situation, no matter the scenario, this is bigger than him. Lord, you. He knows who he is. He acknowledges his eternality also by trusting in what he's done. Look what he says about this, Lord. He said, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Past tense, you have been our dwelling place, means to live with or tabernacle. The same uh, root comes from the word to cohabitate, to live with. Lord, you have lived with us and we have lived with you. You've been our dwelling place through all generations. Think about the way that he has been their dwelling place in Abraham. He says in Genesis chapter 12, I will make you into a great nation. I will make you. Abraham, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go before you. And he does. I don't have a kid. Here comes Isaac. Miraculously, he gives him a son. The Lord was their dwelling place there. The Lord was Jacob's dwelling place. The Lord was Joseph's dwelling place. Well, you get just some recapping of Joseph's story. Favored by his father, Jacob. Hated by his brothers, Mocked to death, sold him into slavery, left for dead. He goes to Egypt. He finds himself in Egypt at Potiphar's house where he quickly gains some traction, if you will. 
until Potiphar's wife accuses him wrongly and he finds himself in prison. And the Lord providentially delivered him through all of that where he becomes second in command of all the nation of Egypt, bringing salvation to many people. Genesis 50, 28 says, and all the while the Lord was his dwelling place. What hope? And then all the time that the Israelites were in Egypt, Moses remembers, you've been our dwelling place even in Egypt when we were slaves. When they made us make bricks without straw, you are our dwelling place. When they beat us, you are our dwelling place. Lord, you have been. This is who you have been. This is what you have done. You're even our dwelling place now in the wilderness. You go before us. You go behind us. We live with you and you live with us. You came and tabernacled with us. Now, even greater, John tells us in John 1.14 about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, tabernacled with us. The Lord, if you are in Him, is your dwelling place. Just as He has been throughout all generations, the Lord is with us, the Lord is in us, and we are living in Him. You ever heard the term, we are in Christ? Or is this person in Christ? That's what it's talking about. Are you dwelling in the dwelling place, the Word, the Son of God? Moses realizes you've been our dwelling place through all generations. He trusts what he's done. He also trusts what he's done in creation. He says in verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world. He says, this Lord who I'm praying for, praying to, has brought forth everything. The whole earth was brought forth. The whole universe was brought forth by a simple word of God. I love Genesis chapter one. It just goes through and God said, boom, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. He simply spoke and it all came into existence. God is the causer of all things that are. If it is, God caused it and created it. This beautiful day that we're seeing right now in the very rare cool weather in Texas springtime. God made this. Lord, you brought forth the whole earth. Moses trusts in the dwelling place. Moses trusts in the creator. The eternal creator. He also understands what and when he has been. When has this creator been? Look at verse 2. It says, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole earth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Not you were God. Not you, you were about to be God. You are God. From everlasting to everlasting. Before creation, God is. Genesis 1.1 gives us a glimpse into this. It's in the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God. And we could stop there and just bask in the majesty of in the beginning, God was, God is, God is there. Moses does. No doubt he's thinking of this. You are God. Isaiah 57, verse 15 says this about the Lord. This is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is Holy. Notice he didn't say who has lived forever, who will live forever. He says who lives forever. Habakkuk 1, verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. 
And then Moses says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. A lot of times, us Christians, we have a little bit of a grasp of eternity future, don't we? Because we know John 3.16. We will have everlasting life. And we think of everlasting, just eternity future, but I want us to just blow ourselves away for just a moment and think before creation, everlasting eternity past, God is. There's never been a time ever, and there will never be a time ever, that God is not as he is right now and has been for all eternity past and will be for all eternity future. We need to be blown away by who God is because when we're blown away by who God is and his eternality, we are humbled and we shrink. The man of God wants to be humbled. The man of God wants to shrink. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. You know what he said in John 3.30? I must decrease and he must increase. This is the heart of a man of God. They acknowledge God's eternality. Oh, didn't our friend Job get this lesson? I love it. I love what, what the Lord says to Job, Job 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Since you've got it all together, Job, where were you when I created everything? Tell me if you understand. Notice he has no response. Who mocked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footing set or who laid its cornerstone? Job. Hello, Job. Do you have anything to say, Job? No, Job has nothing to say in light of God's eternality. Moses has nothing to say in light of this except for from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Lord, that's you. Next in the psalm, man of God accepts life's brevity. Look at verse 3, if you will. He accepts life's brevity that is in the hands of this sovereign Lord. Sovereign is the one who is in control, the master, the one who calls the shots. Look at verse 3. He says, you turn people back to dust. In verse 5, in the first part, he says, you sweep people away in the sleep of death. Who's the one who turns people back? The Lord. Who is the one who sweeps people away in death? The Lord. Who is the causer of these things? The Lord. The Lord is sovereign over life. The Lord is sovereign over death. 1 Samuel 2, verse 6 says, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. All our worry, all our fear about death is gone. When we realize it's in the hand of the sovereign Lord, isn't it? You don't have to worry, when will I die? Oh, no. What's going to happen when I die? Well, the sovereign Lord who's been in control of your whole life, you're not going to trust him with your death as well? You should. We've got to realize we're on God's clock, that our days are completely numbered. Job 14, verse 5 says a person's days are determined. You, Lord, have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. You know why if you live 62 years, 6 months, and 19 days, and 12 hours? Because God said, and don't ask me to repeat that, God said and decreed that you will live that amount of nanoseconds. There's nothing out of his control. He has decreed the days of every man and every woman that cannot be exceeded. 
cannot be added to, cannot be taken away from. You will die and I will die when God has already determined when we shall die. You say, yeah, you can speed that up. You sure can go across 59 at rush hour. And I say, no, God decreed for you to be dumb enough to run across the freeway at rush hour. That was your day. It's not hard. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2 says, for death is the destiny of everyone. How many people? Everyone. The living should take this to heart. If you've got breath in your lungs, if you have a pulse, take it to heart that death is your destiny. You've got an appointment with death. You will die. I will die when God has decreed it. This will make us look at life a little differently, won't it? Life is brief. Life is it's over. Anybody say that's true? A little up in age, and I mean older than me, because anybody older than me is old. You say, man, this life is quick. I'm extremely young, and I realized, dude, yesterday I was going to kindergarten for the first year. You need to realize that life is short. Life is brief. Our days are numbered. You should take that to heart. Verse 4, he says this about our life. A thousand years in your sight, Lord, are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. He says all of our days are just like that. They're like yesterday. It's the expression he means. They're like yesterday. He says it's like a watch in the night. Just a quick four-hour period in the night. Just gone. Nothing. Versus your eternal existence. We will all die. And God will remain, just as he is. Psalm 102, verse 24. Do not take me away, my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on through all generations. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will, never, they will be discarded. You're just going to throw them away like dirty clothes. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. This is how a man of God views life. Verse 5 says this about it. They, meaning people, are like the grass, new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. And anybody who has ever been to West-ish Texas has seen this is true. I've literally woken up in the morning in the springtime after a heavy dew overnight, or maybe it rained a little bit, and you wake up in the morning and the grass is green. And you spend the whole day doing whatever you're doing, and you come back at about 4.30, and you look out, and it's brown. The same grass that was green in the morning is now brown. Moses says, that's like our life. In the morning, it's new. and In the evening, it's gone. It is withered and died. And there's no exemptions to this. Rich or poor. Now listen to the wisdom James says in James 1, verse 10 about the rich. He said, the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. And that literally means this. The rich will fade away and die while they're trying to get richer. That's the story of most rich men, isn't it? They died with their boots on. They died working. They died trying to gain more. What's the point? You die and you can't take a dime with you. 
You're going to leave it for your kids and they're going to fight over it. Why? Why why would you work for this? Psalm 103 verse 15 says, The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower in the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone and its place remembers it no more. Today on the second row on the right, second chair down, Andy Martin is sitting right there. I pray to God in 150 years, this church is still thriving. And I also pray that whoever walks through these doors does not even remember the name or, of Andy Martin. That's how it's going to be. That's how short our life is. That's how forgettable our life is. I pray the same for me, that they don't remember me. That was a prayer of Whitfield's, wasn't it? He said, uh, I pray that the name of Whitfield be forgotten, but Christ be remembered. They're not going to remember us. We aren't that great. Our life's not that awesome. The psalmist says, their life's not even remembered. It's gone. But God remains. What does God, why does God just sweep everybody away? Why why does he bring this death? Why, why, why Why does he do this? Is he just a mean tyrant? Is he just flexing his power just for the sake of doing it? No, see this. Life's brevity that is caused by sin. Look with me, if you will, in verse 7. It says, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. I pray that verse would scare the daylight out of the lost man or woman here. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The reason for our death is sin. There was no death until Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, he brought forth death to the whole entire universe. That includes us. And we are rightly terrified by his anger, the psalmist says. We are terrified by his wrath because we've sinned against God. You didn't just sin against your mom. You didn't just sin against your cousin. You didn't just sin against your best friend or spouse. You sinned against the almighty creator, the eternal creator. This is not... A small deal. Not only have we sinned against him a few times, but he says all of our iniquities are before him. Everything. Look, your closest friend or wife or husband doesn't know everything that you've done wrong. God does. Hebrews 4.13 says this about our Lord. He says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He says, it is all out on the table. You may try to hide it from everybody else, but you cannot hide your sins and your iniquities from this God. He knows it. It is before him. Even our secret sins. He knew Adam's secret sins in the garden, didn't he? Some people will say that God said, Adam, where are you after he sinned? And therefore, God did not know where Adam was. I find that odd that the next question that he asked was, did you eat from the tree? For a God who didn't know what Adam had done, he sure knew how to ask the right questions because he knew exactly what Adam had done. There was not a fig leaf that could cover Adam's nakedness. It was adequate to do such. He was laid bare before that all of his sins came before the light of his presence. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. God's going to bring it to light. Luke 12, verse 2, 
Well, take the Lord Jesus. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Take the Apostle Paul, Romans 2, verse 16. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. There is nothing hidden from God. You may think it's gone. You may think that no one ever will find out, but the deepest, darkest, secret sins of pride, of hypocrisy, they are before the Lord. All of it comes before the light of his presence, he says. Oh, it goes hand in hand with John chapter 3, verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. You know why sinners don't come to Christ? Because they don't want God to know how bad they really are. That is the deceitfulness of sin. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The penitent sinner says this, God, you know. God, you know everything. God, you also know everything. You will punish all my sins. Lord, I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your salvation. Or I will perish in my sins because I cannot escape you. That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Whether they're in church, whether they're not. We all come before the light of his presence. And if all of our sins come before him and they're not hidden from him, this implies a very biblical truth that is forgotten today. Some of you have been in church your whole life and never heard these few verses. And, and if someone brings it up, you've been taught to just look the other way. Listen to this about mankind just to prove that mankind and their sin is not on God's good side. He is not okay and smiling with all of the evil in the world. Look what Psalm 5, verse 5 says. You hate all who do wrong. And that's not a mistranslation. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful, you, Lord, detest. Psalm 7, verse 11, a God who displays his wrath every day. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God Moses is praying to. If this is not your God, you are serving a false God. Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Psalm 26, verse 5, I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. Where in the world did we think it was a good idea to go to wicked people and tell them God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and you're great and you're awesome? God does not say that about them. They will pass away and be swept away under his wrath. And if it were not for the grace of God, I would be leading the charge. I'd be the first one swept away. But God in his grace came to save those under his wrath. But those who are still under his wrath, Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is being revealed under heaven now, presently, against all unrighteousness. Pass away under his wrath, Psalm 90, verse 9. All our days are just going to pass away under the full wrath of God. And all we can do is moan, it says. All we can do is just, what do we have to say for ourselves? We have no kind of defense That's it. And it's gone. We have to accept life's 
brevity that's caused by sin. We have to accept life's, God, uh, life's brevity that comes and goes swiftly. Moses says in verse 10, our days may come to 70 or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass away and we fly away. Last I checked, the, the, the life expectancy of the average American is like 72 and a half years or something like that. Our best days will be 70 years, and if we're lucky, 80. There are not many people who live past 80. And if you do, it's by strength, it's by God's grace. But the average person, they're gone, 70 to 80 years, out of here. That is so short and light compared to eternity, isn't it? 70 years? I mean, we think it's been 2,000 around years since Christ died. 70 years is nothing. How about all of eternity? Nothing. And he says this, the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. Oh, Moses knew trouble and sorrow in his life. Most of you know trouble and sorrow, don't you, to some degree? Life's been tough. Life's been hard. There's been some things that happened in your life that are just troubling and sorrowful. He says that's the best of our days. Wow. And after this comes, we all fly away. Oh, like the old hymn, I'll fly away. That's what it, what it means. Get this, James 4, verse 14. Here's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Ask yourself, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What's your life? Some of the older people will, will identify with this. My life went by like that. And some people, some younger people, we get annoyed with those old people trying to get in our business. Why are they telling us that? Can they just let us enjoy our early 20s? Can they let us enjoy the prime of our life? No, that 80-year-old man's in the prime of his life. He knows. He's been there. He's wise. Listen to his wisdom. Older person, don't get tired of pouring your dumb wisdom on young kids because we're the dumb ones. We need to hear that. We need to hear the question, what is your life? You're a mist that appears and boom, it vanishes. This is all of us. This is who we are. Moses poses a question in verse 11 about this. He says, if only we knew the power of your anger. What he literally means is, who knows how bad it really is? Who knows the power of your anger? The literally, what it means is the omnipotence of your anger. Who knows it? Nahum 1 verse 6, who can withstand his indignation? Who can? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Who can stand before God without being completely consumed? No one. I want you to think for just a moment when you die, you will not just cease to exist. You will find yourself in the presence of God or you will find yourself in hell for all eternity. No in-between, no get-out-of-jail-free, nothing. You're one of the two. I want you to think of the horrors of hell. I want you to just think for just a second how awful the full fury of the Lord's wrath is on you. And you don't go to hell separated from God. You go to hell to face his righteous anger and hatred. And he's pouring it out on the wicked. 
think of how awful. I talk to people in evangelism, and they say, yeah, I'm probably going to go to hell. It is what it is. I want you to back up. I want you to rethink what you just said, because you have no idea how bad that truly is. Spurgeon said, no vision of poet or, no, or denunciation of holy seer can ever reach the dread of this great argument, much less go beyond. He's like, you're never going to get to the bottom of how awful hell is. That may scare some of you, but for the believer, oh man, what hope do we have that Christ freed us? He faced our punishment. This Lord, this angry God, Moses says his wrath is as great as the fear that is his due. His wrath is proportionate with who he is. We can get angry and pour out our wrath and probably be wrong. Might overreact a little bit. God never overreacts. It is perfect. It is consistent with who he is. And a wise man accepts this and lives like it. They live as Moses comes to this in verse 12. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Moses saw but a glimpse of the wrath of God. Moses saw but a glimpse of the glory of God. And he realizes, I need your wisdom to number our days. I need you Lord, because wrath is imminent. It is coming. You cannot escape it. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you do not fear God, you are a fool and you have zero wisdom. Because of this short life that's going to pass away under the wrath of God, we need wisdom. Moses needs wisdom. This man of God We need wisdom to know what to do with our short time. We need wisdom to take into account the words of Christ in Luke 12, 37 that said it would be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. It would be good for those who love the Lord, the man or woman of God, to be doing something for the Lord when he comes, ready for his return, because he is coming. He's coming. And so I ask you, how are you living? How do you live your life? Do you accept life's brevity? Do you apply life's brevity? Do do you live for yourself? The, 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 The next step in the corporate ladder? Do you live for status? Do 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 you live for anything else but God and eternity? What is your life worth? What are you doing? Jonathan Edwards. And he was a young man. He came with these resolutions that he read, I think, weekly. And he said one of them. He said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. That everything you do, everything that you see, everything you think about should be done in light of eternity. Is your life like that? Is your life being lived? Like today, it could be my last. Today, it could be all over. And when you live like this, Let me tell you this, there will be no procrastination in evangelism. There will be this coming to the forefront of your mind. If I don't preach the gospel to that person, they may die or I may die before I can get to them. It's that big of a deal and it's that real to the man of God. They get this. 
Now you say, man, that's kind of a hopeless scenario that you've just painted here. Life's short. God's wrath is hot. We're just going to die. This is not all hopelessness. This is not all bad. To the believer, this is the greatest news ever. Because of this reality, we get to the true truth of the gospel that Christ was consumed for us. He was swept away under the wrath of God so that we can walk free and stand before him in the light of his presence, no longer to face his anger because Christ faced it. No longer to face his wrath because Christ endured it. No longer to face the punishment for our sins because the punishment that brought us peace, Isaiah 53 says, was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Because he who knew no sin, Christ, became sin for us so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. If you are in Christ, you have this hope. If you are out of Christ, you have not that hope. You have nothing to look forward to but wrath in its full fury. The only way we can stand is in Christ. And finally, the man of God abides in the Almighty. He abides out of desperation. Verse 13, Moses just comes to this. After all of the doom and gloom, he says, relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. His only hope to stand, and our only hope to stand for God is for him to be merciful. We need his compassion. Because if it were not for his mercy, we would face his justice. And God would be totally right to punish every sinner. He did not have to save one. But he has saved a multitude. And he is still calling sinners to come and find his grace and find his mercy in Christ. We need his compassion. We, we, we need the Lord for true satisfaction. He says, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. We need this quenching. He is what we need. He is what you need. He, he, he is the only one we need. His loving kindness will satisfy you and you will need nothing else. Christ plus nothing is everything. The man of God understands this. You take his house, you take his family. I still have Christ. You can't take him. I take everything that he's ever had, everything he's ever worked for, his very life, you can't take Christ. He's all I have. He's all I need. He is my satisfaction. He is the quenching of my soul. He says, satisfy us in the morning. Oh, I love that he said in the morning. And this is not to say that if you don't read your Bible for three hours in the morning, God will sweep you away. No, he's saying, satisfy us in the morning. When I wake up and I'm not swept away, when the flood of your wrath has not completely covered me and I have not been consumed by your fury, Lord, satisfy me that I woke up and that I am alive because of your loving kindness, because of your mercy, because of your compassion. Satisfy us. For a purpose. Look at that purpose. In verse 14, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Satisfy us so we can sing to you. A satisfied soul sings. Men, stop thinking it's not manly to sing at the top of your lungs to the Lord. Quit it. Stop being embarrassed. 
Because if you're truly satisfied in the Lord, you won't care. You sing a song to him. You overflow with joy. You overflow with love for your Savior, for your Redeemer. But if you don't sing to him, man, have a hard time believing that you're satisfied. You may be looking for something else. Man of God, sing. One of God sings like a bird in the morning. No one has to tell the birds, hey guys, start chirping, start singing a song. They wake up with a song because of the Lord's loving kindness that he woke them up and they flew down out of their nest and there was a worm at the base of their tree that God placed there and they will sing because of the Lord's provision. How much more has the Lord provided for us in salvation? And yet we sit and never sing a word to him or we mouth the words on the screen. May it not satisfied soul. Be satisfied in the unfailing love of the Lord and sing with everything that you have. Verse 15. He goes on to say, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. He has been talking about the affliction of the Lord's wrath until now for this whole psalm, hasn't he? Lord, make us glad for as long as you have afflicted us. Lord, trade our affliction for joy. There's a great trade that occurs when we are saved, isn't it? Isaiah 12, verse 1 talks about this. It says, I will praise you, Lord, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. You trade the affliction of God's wrath and the fear and the dread of what's coming for ultimate, satisfying joy in the Lord Jesus Christ when you come to him. There is nothing that can replace this. There is nothing that can bring more gladness to a soul than knowing the Lord's anger has been turned away from me because it was turned upon Christ in my place. And I walk free. We abide in the Almighty out of complete desperation. Oh, we need him. Every hour, we need him. And when we come to Christ, when he saves us, we obtain a new desire. Watch the shift in verse 16. Moses prays, may your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. We want and pray for God to show who he is to others. We want and, and, and pray for God to show his might and majesty, no matter the lengths that he may go. We will pray crazy things like this. Lord, afflict them and make their life miserable until they turn to you for salvation. We want that. Because that was us. That was us. The Lord's affliction brought forth his might and his majesty. And though we were drawn to his mercy... The heart of the man of God is for others to fear him and to find refuge in his mercy and loving kindness. Do you want that? Do you want others to come to know the Lord? Don't shy away from the fury of God against sin and the brevity of life, but the mercy and the grace that he provides in Jesus Christ. You will abide in the Almighty with finally ongoing dependence. Moses prays, finally, may the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. 
Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses knows he is hopeless without the favoring hand of God being upon him. He is hopeless without the grace of God. Noah was the same way. Genesis chapter 6 paints the picture of the whole world. Every thought, every heart, every idea and thought and imagination of every human being was evil all the time. Genesis 6 verse 8 says, But Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord because the flood of God's consuming wrath was coming, wasn't it? If it were not for the favor of the Lord coming on Noah, apart from anything Noah did, he would be swept away. You will be swept away like the flood without the grace of God, without the grace of Christ, the unmerited favor of him, the one who gives grace and salvation to his people, to those who call to him for salvation. He will save you as our only hope, the one who was consumed for us. We need him for salvation. We don't only need him for salvation. We need him for every part of life. Look what he says. Don't miss this. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I need your favor in every minute thing that I do in my life. We need God's grace to save us, and we also need God's grace to sustain us daily. He says it twice. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We need you. We need you. We need you tomorrow. We're going to need you next week. So finally, man or woman of God, be wise to number your days. To think of this. To, 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 to think, what is my life? Think when your last breath is breathed, and you close your eyes, where will you spend eternity? You will spend it in hell or you will spend it with the Lord. It's eternal life or it's eternal death. Without true saving faith in Jesus Christ, it will be eternal death. You will face this fury that we have just caught a glimpse of that no one can truly get to the bottom of. And you will perish forever. But today I beg you, cry to mercy and cry for the Lord's to shower you with his grace. He stands not only ready to save, but able to save those who come to him through faith as their only hope of salvation. I can make you this guarantee. If you call upon the name of the Lord, he will save you today. A Christian, do you look at life like the man of God? Do you look at life through the lens acknowledging God's eternality? This is the God who you're dealing with, who has let you dwell with him. Or do you accept life's brevity? That, the, that, that our life is, just gets quicker and is going and it's soon to be gone till we wiped away. Oh, but do you abide in the Almighty? Is he your only hope? Is, is, is he all you need? Is he your satisfaction? Is he your gladness? Is he your joy? Is he, as Isaiah says, your salvation? Our days are numbered. You will gain no more. I will gain no more. What are you doing with the ones God has given you? Maybe you have kids. Maybe you have adult children. Maybe you have people in your life. What are you doing for God with what God has given you? 
Are you pouring Christ into your children, into the others that are around you? Are you making the most of every day because this life is short, you are not guaranteed tomorrow? What are you doing? What are you doing with your life? What is your life? I'll leave you with a quote from J.C. Ryle. Listen to this. It says, never spend your time in such a way that you would not like to have God say, what are you doing? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you are eternal or that you have extended your hand of mercy to those who are undeserving. Lord, to those who would never seek you, you sought. Lord, the ones that would never understand you brought understanding, you, and you shed, you shed light. You exposed the darkness of our sin and the horrors of your wrath, Lord, and you called us to faith in your Son, Jesus. I pray we would see that. I pray that we would live our life like the man of God. We would see that life is short, eternity is long. We would see that your grace is enough. And may we live in you, may we abide in you, may we look to you to establish all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness.